Welcome to the Your Oxygen Mask First podcast. I'm Erin Young, and this is a space where we explore ways to help the helpers. Because you can't help anyone before you help yourself. So sit back, put your own oxygen mask on, and enjoy the ride. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I am back with another episode and another amazing guest. And I am so lucky to know this dude personally, because not only does he live in my town, but he's also working with the Northern Nevada Peer Support Network, which is now the Nevada Peer Support Network. And he is our clinical advisor. He is a jack of all trades, and he has a whole bunch of letters by his name that I don't even know what they are. So he's going to have to explain them. And he just wrote a new book called living ideations. And I'm really lucky that I have my own copy. And today he's here to talk about his book and living ideations and what they are. So please welcome doctor. And I want to call him like doctor, doctor, Dr. Steve, doctor, Steve, after Indiana Jones, because he is like a jack of all trades and he's super cool. Like Indiana Jones. So doctor, Steve Nicholas, thank you for coming. Thanks, Aaron. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Very nice to be here. So tell us about yourself. You know, we want to know that you're super qualified to be talking about this and maybe explain all of the letters behind your name. So I'll use the catch-all phrase of shrinkologist. That's what my, (laughs) one of my best friends calls me. But uh, so the letters behind my name is that I do have my doctorate in counseling, educational psychology. Uh, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and a nationally certified counselor uh, in all the states. I'm also an approved supervisor, uh, an American approved supervisor for Uh, professional counseling students. So when folks in my line of work are coming out of graduate school, they have to have at least a master's degree, and then they have to have supervision of at least 3,000 hours of their work with a knucklehead like me. So those are the professional designations that I have. The professional capacities that I fulfill are in here in Northern Nevada. I have a, a pretty comprehensive private practice where I see folks throughout the week, all walks of life, individuals, couples, and families. But the other roles that I have become affiliated over the last handful of years have surrounded, uh, let me back up a moment, all of my graduate research uh, in this field ended up really revolving around suicide and the phenomenon of, uh, of suicidal folks and the impacts that suicide has on families, on relationships, on organizations. And not too many people study those things in school. And since I study and I work with a lot of darkness, quite frankly, I think the darker the better. That means that I'm pretty popular because there's a lot of darkness out there in the world right now. And so I've become, in my trainings, pretty close with the first response community because many moons ago, I was just talking for a few minutes with, uh, actually, I think it was a uh, was Remza and uh, air medical at an air medical conference, and we were talking about suicidal uh, risk factors. And a couple of people were in the audience, and uh, then that turned in. For example, Italian Chief Derek Reed with Truckee Meadows Fire was in the audience, so we started talking about how could we help uh, local firefighters, and that branched into there were people from the wildland fire community, so that branched into how can we help folks in the wildland community because fire first response, wildland fire, military. These are all similar breeds, but different breeds for sure. So that gets my brain thinking on how do we try to help the folks who are in darkness in all of those first response type hero, warrior type of cultures. And then 
things that are definitely in the news are we lose teens and adolescents to suicide. And that's a very alarming uh, phenomenon. And so I've developed models to try to help our communities with our young people. So that's me in a mouthful that, that explains the letters in my, my career. But do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain? I do. I do. And uh, Rupert Holmes is the musician that sings that song, by the way. I also have a ton of useless knowledge in the database of my head. <laughs> so I happen to know one fun fact about you that nobody would guess. Do you oh, want to talk about it? I don't know. You remind me which one. I know there's a lot of things, um, but you actually have a degree in theater. Yeah, I do. Yeah. We were talking uh, off air, Aaron, and you and I were talking about essentially uh, how I became a talker. And so all of my college degrees are essentially in talking. But yeah, fun fact is that I have uh, one of my bachelor's degrees is in theater. So I've been on a few stages a few different times. See, the things that you learn about people, you just never know. <laughs> It's like Pandora's box, boom. Right. Some of those books should be shut. <laughs> so going back to the darkness, because that's where we kind of um, live and breathe a lot of this stuff when we're talking about mental health for first responders is how did you get the idea specifically for this book? So first responders, public educators, professional educators, many people are trained, any mandated reporter is trained to look for risk factors in people. It's a medical model. Uh, we find what is wrong and we try to alleviate what we deem to be wrong. So when we find a risk factor of suicide, ideations of suicide, we're all trained to ask directly, have you thought about killing yourself? Uh, have, do you have a plan on how you would take your life? So we are trained to look for suicidal ideations. Uh, it's a very common and it is the model, the predominant model in suicide prevention and intervention. So quite a few years ago, I was doing some research and it's actually, I unfortunately had to write three doctoral dissertations before I was let out of my, 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 my doctorate program. And my final project that was accepted interviewed family members individually and collectively who had lost a member to suicide death. And I traced the behavioral pathways, the decisions and the behavioral pathways of these families. And so I was able to describe the lived experiences of families who became more connected after suicide and the behavioral pathways and lived experiences of families that just disintegrate and blew apart after losing a prominent member. So the takeaway that got a lot of attention was, hold on, you're saying that some people can actually become more connected after the darkness? And the answer is yes, they can. So I started to use the phrase living ideation rather than suicidal ideation, which created a bunch more research for me. So the phrase living ideation is simply the inverse of assessing for suicidal ideations. And it's a heck of a lot easier for professionals and for just anybody to talk about living constructs versus the atrophying and dying constructs. A lot more palatable. Now, who is this book for? Because the way that you described it makes me want to read it, but also to give it to people who may not be very well versed in suicide or who have never experienced it in their world or have never been suicidal because it sounds like 
it it's something that could reach everybody. Is that right? Well, that's ultimately the idea. What's tough uh, is me creating it in a way that is digestible to everybody. Because originally all of my living ideation training and I, I copyrighted essentially a model on how to interview for suicide prevention and intervention. And it's actually not going after suicide. It's assessing for life and living variables. So that was a clinical approach that I originally came up with. So I would train like in continuing ed uh, units for mental health professionals. So, but moms, dads, siblings, colleagues, we all encounter our loved ones and our, and our, our fellow workers in times of darkness, not just in, in our living rooms or our bedrooms. So how to start creating these models and get it to everybody. That was my big task. And so this book is an offering of how to one reconceptualize and destigmatize suicide, because that is, in my opinion, 90% of the work. If we would stop stigmatizing suicidal mindsets, then we would start allowing a progressive development of mental health. You know, we talk about mental health all the time, but what most people are actually talking about is mental illness. When they're talking about mental health, they're talking about mental illness, and that's wrong. So there's plenty of time and opportunity for us to tend to illness. But if we actually try to amplify and treat health, I'm quite confident, I'm very confident that we can outcompete depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide so often. Not every time, of course, but inventorying for suicidal ideations has a secondary approach after we have tried to assess living concepts. We can talk all day about those. But my book and the trainings and the offerings ultimately are for everybody, not just clinicians. You'll notice in the book, uh, the first two thirds are for everybody and non-clinicians. These approaches to our sons, our daughters, our spouses, our friends, our colleagues. And do you think it's beneficial for someone who may have not been touched by suicide to pick it up and read it prior to experiencing a crisis? Kind of like a, yes. like a pre-education just in case something happens. I'm glad you used that phrase as a matter of fact. So of the few hats that I wear with living ideation applications and training, one of them is with uh, secondary school students, so middle school and high school students. And my approach is actually not to go after the kiddo who we're worried about, it's to go after the adults. So living ideation is applied to the adult caregivers, that's teachers, coaches, parents, any adult mentor in a young person's life is encouraged to start thinking in those terms of how well do I know my kiddo? And how well, like, for example, do I know what my teen is good at? Do I know what my teen is proud of? And so if the adult caregivers are thinking about connecting and engaging with their kids, then they're going to start behaving that way. So with suicide with teens, for example, many of our kids are floundering, they're drowning, and we are ignorantly expecting that they know how to swim. When we adults are the swim instructors and we know how to provide flotation devices. So the suicide uh, prevention and intervention is a living model on let's amplify the living variables of what we're proud of, what we're good at, uh, our achievements within our kids, and that helps them start to float, if you will. The concepts with first responders are we are asking ourselves and we are asking our colleagues in a pre-incident modality because in first response 
in military, in wildland culture. Uh, there are CISM and CISD models, critical incident stress management, critical incident stress debriefs. Those are models that need to, need to stay around, but they are response models, similar to a medical model. We wait till something is thrashed, broken, or dead before we tend to it. And I get it, we all get it, but a pre-incident model is what living ideation is about. So I have opportunities where I work with uh, BLM fire, uh, Forest Service, Wildland Fire, and we are developing pre-incident, pre-season models of mental health training, not response to mental illness or stress. So long answer to your question of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it seems too, the first responder hood is very reactive. You, you know, wait around in the station for a call. And then, you know, as a dispatch, you're waiting for the phone to ring and the police officer may be driving around waiting to be dispatched to a call. So our nature is to be reactive. And so it's a pretty fascinating that you're taking one step ahead and doing some pre-planning for the, it's not the inevitable, but the unthinkable. I, I agree with you that if it is unthinkable, once we are forced to think about it, that stress and that potential trauma is already inflicted. So the pre-incident model on focusing on ideations of living, they involve asking ourselves, what are we, how do we maintain health? Not how do we avoid illness? How do we stay healthy? But on a holistic entire lifestyle basis, not how do I stay good at my profession or my job? How do I keep you know, in line for that next promotion, but how do I go and love on my family and let them love on me outside of my shift? How do I uh, maintain my interests? How do I connect with others? So how do I separate the warrior from the self is the big idea of living ideations. Because I mean, the old classic Stephen King movie, The Shining, all work and no play leaves Jack a very dull boy. So we have to, we are, we are more than the first responders. We are more than the, the dispatcher, the police officer, the soldier, the firefighter. You were a self prior to being in those heroic roles. So the self has to be tended to, dare I say, train, because people in first response are great at training, train, 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 and you maintain. Well, it's logical that we would do this in our, the rest of our roles. So where does peer support fit into the preparation and the planning? Can you talk a little bit more about the benefits or drawbacks to having a team? Well, I, I will always advocate for peer support models and peer support teams. Uh, it's the philosophical shift of, are we just there in times of bad and in, in drama and trauma? Do we just respond or does peer support actually anticipate that the gig is going to be very difficult and therefore we're going to start to promote balance and wellness because we know that the gnarly stuff's going to come. So a real peer support model entails not just watching and waiting, but engaging, engaging before our people are tipped over, before our brothers and sisters are in psychological harm's way which can lead to being in occupational harm's way. That's how mistakes, disastrous mistakes can happen. So it is looking out for each other, but I think the philosophical shift in real peer support that people don't really talk about is allowing people to help us. So the model of, will you have your brothers and your sisters back? 
everybody's going to reflexively say, absolutely. I got your back. The tough part is, can we respectfully get over ourselves and allow people to have our back? So Aaron, I know you'll have my back. Will you let me have yours? There's that ego, that, that strength variable of, of that warrior mindset of that hero. Can you let me help you? And before you are too far gone. So real peer support is actively looking for at being with tending to, but it's also allowing our, our brothers and sisters to do that for us. So that kind of makes sense how the peer support model could keep growing in a healthful way instead of just a responsive way. Oh, absolutely. And I think now that peer support is becoming more accepted and more uh, management and upper level uh, command staff and, um, you know, directors of different agencies, different um, departments are becoming more accepting of it and actually starting to allow peer support to work and to happen or even advocating for it is huge. And I think that more needs to be done on the peer support level. Now that we've established peer support is good and we're there when people need us. Now, what can we do to start backtracking and um, pre-supporting people before they really need it? You know, the checking in, you know, you're not kind of normal today. What's going on with you? Or, hey, I heard you had a, a bad call. Like you want to hang out and talk about it. Uh, we need well, to kind of check in with people more. Yes, we need to check in, but not necessarily in a questioning way. <laughs> so part of uh, my belief and philosophy on how we really support is I'm not going to ask you, I'm going to tell you. So for example, just to use you case in point, if I see that you are dragging a little bit and I say, hey lady, how you doing today? You're probably gonna lie with the best of intentions of I'm all right. Maybe you'll say, I'm tired, I'm getting run down but you're probably not going to tell me any of the nitty gritty. But if I state, if I just make a statement of, Hey, you're not batting a thousand right now. You're not your best. Let's grab something to eat. So no, notice how those are statements and not questions because we tend to offer those pleasantries and we're cordial with our answers. So how you doing? Fine. How was school today, son? Fine. What'd you learn today? Nothing much. When the truth is, of course, there are deeper answers, right? Mm -hmm. So true peer support is not asking questions as much as it's stating. It's validating. Hey, that was a really tough set. Let's go grab something. That was a, uh, so for a wildland, you know, firefighter who does a 14 and two, uh, those two days, do you know what they do more often than not? Laundry, sleep, eat, bad TV. That's about it. But true peer support is going to normalize that and essentially maybe say, we got chewed up this last roll, so please take care of yourself. And I'm going to, it's a statement, I'm gonna check in with you. That's real peer support. But especially when we're when our identities are outside of the profession, the professional mindset, everybody's awesome because you're affiliated, you're in your tribe, but it's out of season, out of shift. That's when people aren't necessarily in touch and understanding what they're about. So that question that I had said earlier, you know, how do you separate warrior and self? You're a self before you're a hero, a warrior. So we've got to keep balancing that out and treating that person. And when somebody's not levelly 
you know, on a level ground where they can do that to themselves. They can't size up themselves. That's where their professional loved ones are going to come in. I, that's amazing. I don't even have anything really to say about that. <laughs> I was like, boom. Um, so can you, how do you tell if someone is suicidal? So the risk factors, there's a, there's a wealth of research that describes suicidal risk factors and suicidal variables. Um, they're not profoundly difficult to see or understand. I think that when we see that our loved ones and our colleagues are suffering and they've lost interest in ways that they used to have interest, they stop act, you know, being active or behaving in ways that they used to. When they start having feelings and behaviors that demonstrate low confidence, uh, I, when they are, let's say, uh, making overt statements, there's the classics of they start giving all their possessions away. Well, maybe they're going Marie Kondo on it at the same time and thinning things out. But the basic variables of a of a of a tough mindset, I call Charlie Brown theory. You know, if you go back to the Peanuts cartoon by Charles Schultz, Charlie Brown was regularly kind of kicked out of the gang. They would call him names, Charlie Brown, you blockhead, and then they would send him packing, right? So he regularly lacked affiliation. So a lack of affiliation is dangerous. So if you think of a first responder, when they're outside of their tribe, they may not, they may not have people or they may not have people that get it. How many first responders go home and their loved one might say, hey, how was work? What'd you do? Well, that first responders or that, or that soldier is not going to share that information with their loved one because the loved one doesn't get it. They're not in the tribe. So a lack of affiliation in tribe is a huge warning sign. And Charlie Brown regularly was outside of the club, out of the gang. Second one is, an, is, is pain. When somebody can only perceive that their life is pain, emotional, physical, if they can't perceive non-pain, that's a trouble. That's warning sign. And last, achievement. So affiliation, pain, and achievement. When somebody says to themselves, I'm no good, and there's no point, and that's their truth, and they can't experience non-pain, and they're out of the gang. If Charles Schultz didn't turn the stories regularly, Charlie Brown would have been a depressed or suicidal mindset, right? Because mm -hmm. He was kicked out regularly. He was made fun of all the time. When he'd throw a baseball, the pitch would knock his clothes off on the mound. And the lack of achievement, I own all the comic strips, and Charlie Brown has never kicked the Lucy Van Pelt's teed up ball a single time. So the dude never won, and he's a bald kid, right? He doesn't even have any hair. So all of those things would be a very dark mindset. So think about that in real world with all of our relationships. When somebody is isolated, and not just lonely, alone, alone and lonely are different, right? So when they have a sense of isolation, that they just don't fit anywhere. They don't have any circles, any teams. When they cannot perceive non-pain, and I don't mean just joy, a full spectrum of emotional affect. When they do not have much besides non-pain, they're all alone, unaffiliated, and there's really no perspective that they can achieve. So they, they're stuck. That could be, probably would be, a mindset that one thinks is inescapable. And an inescapable mindset, they're down to two choices. All this awful 
or the absence of awful. So when somebody's solitary mindset is all darkness, then wouldn't we actually think non-dark is somewhat rational? So a suicidal mindset ends up being somewhat of a rational decision to somebody that can only perceive darkness. They have to end it. And that isn't someone necessarily being selfish at all. They're not trying to hurt other people, someone who is in a suicidal mindset. They're trying to stop hurting themselves. They hurt. And wouldn't we want that? Oh, absolutely. And I think like their their line of thinking is just has gotten so narrow and narrow as the darkness has closed in because it makes sense to them. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily need to make sense to anybody else. So, so Aaron, how- I mean, narrow and narrow, and I mean so narrow that you got two options. My life is all pain, all awful, and then there's none. So it does make sense. Suicide more often than not ends up being a rational concept to somebody whose who's, who's options are down to two. They're not thinking with all of the options that most people are. They're thinking, my life is all awful and painful. Therefore, there's a non. Where's the off switch? So in that vein, you have this person who is suicidal and their focus is, is narrow. If they come into your office, how do you apply the living ideations um, philosophy to them to help them? That's a sweet segue. Thanks for bringing it back. So living ideations takes that somebody has a dichotomous mindset. I have two options, all pain or non-pain. Now I need to crack the door and get at least one more option in there. So you'll find that some mental health providers have have a sneaky trick in their office. They've got a little bowl of candies or chocolates. In my office, I always have a pot of hot water for tea or coffee. And I'll put a glass of hot water or tea in somebody's hand. I'll give them a Hershey Kiss chocolate. And now we have three options. We have my life royally sucks, death, and chocolate is delicious. <laughs> and it may not be much, but it's a start. And then if you can get somebody, and even if you're not playing a trick on them with their taste buds, if you can allow them a couple of moments to realize that that moment didn't steal you, that that moment didn't wasn't the end. And if you can allow those two constricted options of awful and non-awful, if you can allow those to grow just a little bit, even with the reality of, hold on, we're still sitting here together. And by the way, there's a together. Wow. So I'm not absolutely alone. I feel pretty damn alone, but we're still here. And I have a lot of options, but it takes a while for that, that really tight knot of constricted thinking to loosen. And so living ideations is saying, if anything, if we just sat here and did nothing, I wonder what might happen. And then we start creating things to happen. A living ideation is lemonade. It's ice cold lemonade on a, on a hot August day. So I want you to think of sweltering hot August afternoon day, and then imagine taking a sip of ice cold lemonade. It's damn hot and the lemonade is delicious. So it's the and factor. So living ideation is trying to promote and allow the and factor. So my life, like if you think of Charlie Brown, life is damn awful. Lucy is a jerk to me. She always pulls the football. And there's the cute redheaded girl that I'm going to write the Valentine to. And I'm going to hope. One of the biggest competitors here at living ideations, the biggest competitors to pain come in the form of love, come in the form of connectedness with other people. 
come in the form of time. It's not time that moves and heals. It's what we do with time that moves and heals it, right? So living ideations from a mental health perspective, but even just within our families, within our crews, within our organizations, is we want to create direction that leads a little bit out of today. Today might suck royally because it is the summation of all of our other days leading up to today. And those have been awful. But living ideation is saying, yes, awful. Not going to talk you out of that. And lemonade and Hershey kisses and a warm kiss and a great blanket and the thread count on your pillowcase and the fuzzy ears on your on your dog. Right. So living ideation comes in the form of did you see the sunrise that we had this morning? Because it was just it was amazing. So it is cracking the door of two options to a little bit more. And then we just sit tight and a little bit more and a little bit more. So living ideations goes at those three concepts that I talked about, Charlie Brown theory of we got to have affiliations that goes back to the peer support model, right? Mm -hmm. We have to have non-pain. That's why a lot of people in first response use some dark gallows humor because it works, man. You do too many suicide calls or you see too many peds calls. You got to be able to shake that up. And sometimes some dark humor will help that just a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we have to have a sense of achievement because you deserve life after your career. And I think what I love about this so much is you hear a lot of people who have been suicidal kind of recount their experience with either different clinicians or different modalities. And the thing that I've heard is that I don't like somebody tell me what I should be grateful for. It's almost like a shame thing. Like I should, I should feel bad about wanting to end my life because look at everything that you have, you know, you should be grateful for. It. And what if I am grateful for it, but I just, I don't know how to appreciate it. I'm thinking about the big things, the big accomplishments. I haven't done anything with my life. You know, I haven't finished college. You know, I'm so focused on those, those big pain points to have someone maybe gently tell me, you know, look at that. I can appreciate that. Do you appreciate that? Instead of telling someone, this is how you should feel. I don't understand why you don't. Well, and when I'm using this living ideation approach, I'm never going to try to shame or invalidate somebody's truth. That's their damn truth. So if your life is all pain, who am I to tell you what to be grateful for? Right? So I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to say, yeah, it's all pain. How's your tea? I'll say something like that. And they might, be, oh, that's kind of good. Hold on a second. You tell me that good tea exists while your entire, your entire life sucks? Yeah, that both exists. So let's at least drink more tea. I'm never going to talk you out of that awful perception that you have, but I'm going to try to grow it to include sunsets, warm kisses, funny Seinfeld episodes, a wonderful dog things like that, you know? And do you send them home with any homework to keep them constantly refocusing? Well, that's relative to every person because the living ideation model defies cultural barriers in that it's not a one size fits all. It's a philosophy that could be applied to anybody. So the homework is I want to reinforce the idea that connectedness helps, right? I want to reinforce that there are opportunities for non-pain and I don't know what those could be for you. So the homework would be revolving around that. But also the experience of today is 
probably a no good rotten day. And that, I don't know, do you think that has to turn into tomorrow? That's your call. So I try to instill the opportunity for freedom and choice. And I mean, there's one vignette that I talk about a lot in my trainings of, I worked with a dude who was incredibly suicidal. He was so overwhelmed and anxious, essentially with agoraphobic traits, he would never leave his apartment. Lived on this this upper floor in this apartment complex. He would only leave in the middle of the night to do his grocery shopping because people, no, bad. So I took it on call. I was on call and he called. I answered. We're talking, we're de-escalating the panic and just the sheer agony of darkness. And I said, dude, is there anything you could do right now for somebody else? Because I'm not going to talk you out of how bad your life is, but I'm wondering, could you do something helpful for somebody else? And all of a sudden he said, yeah, I got an idea. I'll be right back. So I hear his footsteps march down the hallway. I hear his door open and close, which was rad, by the way. And then he doesn't come back for like five minutes and I am sweating. I'm so nervous. I'm like, oh my God, I think this dude might've like taken his life. So now I'm finding emergency contact information. I'm going through um, my computer, trying to find information on this dude. And I hear the door open and close. I hear his footsteps come back and he's panting. He's breathing heavy. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? What happened right there? And I could essentially hear him, feel him smiling over the phone. And he said, there's this older woman who lives down the hall and she never takes her trash out. She just piles it at the outside of her door of her apartment and she takes it down to the dumpster once a week. So it's the middle of the night and he went and he took all her trash out and you could hear him laughing. He's like, man, she's going to be so freaked out because I just did that solid for her. So therefore right there, boom, we cracked the door. Right. So it didn't change the fact that his life is awful, but it did add that that dude is of service. So that's a small achievement that he's valuable. So being having a sense that I am valuable means that in the future, I could be valuable with people in places, in events. I could have non-pain, I could achieve, I might find love again. So it's cracking that door just to find a little bit of something. I love it. I love that story. I can't believe I haven't heard it before. Well, I've got a lot of them. I've been doing this for a little while. You need to write another book. (laughs) Sure, you got it. Is there anything, I know we kind of bounced around a little bit because squirrel brain and I have so many things I want to ask you in very little time. Is there anything I missed about the living ideations and specifically what you have in the book or anything that you really want the reader or the listeners and the people who are watching this to like really take home? Yes. And I think people will chuckle at the fact, but seriously, think about what I'm about to say. We have all successfully navigated 100% of our days. Therefore, we're pretty good at living. And frankly, we suck at dying. We're all here right now. So if we try to dust off the variables of living, instead of just trying to avoid the variables of atrophying and dying, then instead of an illness model, it's a wellness model. So focusing and trying to explore the ideations of living instead of just avoiding and and solving the ideations of dying is what this concept is all about. So yes, I would want the reader, the listener, I would want all of us to remember that we know how to live. We do know how to do it. Slow down, get back to our basics of who are we and what are we about? So size ourselves up, 
because every day, quite frankly, gets to be a redo if we choose for it to be. Yep. Every time the sun rises, it's like a, I don't know, like the, the reset button. I, I, I really, if we, really, if we that. allow it to be right, we stuck gets to be a particular mindset. Yeah. And those, uh, what intrusive thoughts. Let imagine if that, imagine if the intrusive thoughts were searching for beauty. No. Living. I lost it. I am so sorry. I'm so spacey today. Well, that's because I keep doing these truth bombs on you. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> and and you know what? That is the intended effect because I think the best part about the living ideations is that you're stopping them from that rumination, that those intrusive thoughts, everything that's over and over they're, again. And you just did it to me, and I wasn't even thinking about stopping. it. So the idea is it's a it's a paradigm shift. It's a philosophy. It's not a set of techniques as much as it is philosophically driven on what does it mean to exist? So that's existential uh, therapy at its finest right there. Of What does it mean to be you today, now, hopefully aiming toward the future? Mm -hmm. There's not a day of our past that we can get our hands back on to reset and redo. We don't get that opportunity. Today's all we get. In fact, it doesn't even have to be today. It's just now. It's this moment. There's an incredible amount of opportunity. We can do nothing or we can do a something in this moment. And then that becomes the starting point of our next moment. So there isn't, there's constant redos. It's not just a, every sunrise. It's now. I love it. Thank you. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you're trading other clinicians on, on this philosophy? Sure. Well, again, all of my research uh, started in doing continuing ed trainings for mental health providers on suicide prevention and intervention. And so it is not only reviewing and doing the have to do stuff on here are the, the things to look out for, but everybody is really focused on what do I stop doing? What do I look out for? Well, the things we should have always been looking out for are health and wellness. So how I, I talk with clinicians on, did you ask your, your patient how they're sleeping? Did you ask them what they were looking forward to on Saturday? And that gets people to say, wait, what? That's not in shrinkology. What are they doing on Saturday? But if you take a depressed teenager and you say, kiddo, what do you got planned this Saturday afternoon? And they tell you, it doesn't matter what they tell you. They just revealed future orientation. Future orientation is not acutely desirous of dying, right? So mm -hmm. I teach what I train people is to think of the energy of somebody's comment and the directionality of it with time. Is it present and future oriented or is it the depressed mindset of everything that I've ever done has been awful, therefore I'm awful and it'll always be awful. That's a very stuck, rigid mindset. So it is trying to take the, the energy of, the, of what they're doing instead of just the content so, for example, if uh, if you find a, a bag of weed in your kiddo's, you know, bedroom, people are rarely focusing on that that kiddo, the energy and the direction is the kiddo is searching. The kiddo is searching for a change of emotion or how they feel. Well, we can work with that. So instead of being all riled up about the fact that we found a bag of weed in their room, we can think about, hey, kiddo, you're searching for something. That is present and that has an option to go in a whole lot of directions that could be incredibly productive. 
But if we just hammer down in a disciplinary way or say, this kid is abusing drugs, well, while that might be true, this kiddo is also searching. So let's go after the living directions and the living energies of searching and what that could mean versus the atrophying directions and the eroding directions of drug abuse. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So my trainings have a philosophical shift that is present and future oriented instead of illness reduction, which is somewhat regressive. Mm-hmm. And punishment and stigma, because we all know that, you know, punishment is really rarely a, a good form of course correction. Correct. If we go back to first responders in a peer support model, when we find out that one of our professional loved ones is struggling with addiction, which is unfortunately very common in first responder and in military, they're struggling with addiction. Do we think discipline? Do we think that they're a screw up, all those stigmatized concepts? Or do we think that they're suffering and that they're searching for something non-suffering? So somebody that's abused, you know, has a substance use disorder in, in most types of professions or situations, they're probably looking to use those substances as a dimmer switch, volume control. They need to turn that stuff down. Well, let's look at the energy and the desire to change the frequency and the volume of their pain. And then we can actually start to understand, well, hell yeah, of course you're going to use those drugs or that alcohol. Of course your best friend is whiskey because whiskey doesn't disappoint. Yeah. And it's um, holding people accountable because we're still going to hold them accountable, especially when there are laws and policies to be broken. But why are we shaming people for a situation that their, their job probably created? And why are we not putting those safeguards in place to prevent that from happening? So it's, is it their fault? Is it not their fault? We can't give it a pass, but we can give it consideration, right? So instead of vilifying people for the depression, for the anxiety and the coping mechanisms that come with the depression and the anxiety and the complicated trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Let's give it consideration because then we can help it turn. Do you want to talk about fitness for duty at all and how this plays into it? Well, imagine fitness for duty if it's really conceptualized in a pre-incident. Let's, let's teach them how to stay fit instead of how to regain fitness. So that that's that's going to be the shortest answer you're going to get from me. Pre incident versus post, it. you know. I think you are one of the most concise people I've interviewed in a very long time. I'm just <laughs> trying to like pick your brain forever because I feel like there's so much more, but you are just nailing it. Well, we can hang as long as you want. Um. So, do you have advice for people who are not peer support trained, not clinically trained? How do you talk to a suicidal person? Because I feel like there's um, some conflicting information as to, well, you can't say this to a suicidal person, but then another publication or another big name will say, oh yeah, you absolutely say this. So what's your take on that? Uh, I love this question. So how does a non-clinically trained person work with somebody in despair? Like you care about them, like you love them. How about that? Pretty simple. And I... I think I was, must've been very frustrated when I was doing a big training. Uh, it was a huge auditorium full of people and somebody raised their hand They're like, all right, all right, Dr. Steve. So I get it. I like all these directions, but how, how do you really implement that? And I was tired and I, I was frustrated because I thought it was a stupid question. And evidently there aren't stupid questions. So I snapped back and I said, you treat them like you care about them. And that <laughs> looks and sounds different 
depending on who you are. So Aaron, to you, how do you interact with people? Like you care about them, but that's going to come off and vibe a little bit differently than how I'm going to love on somebody, right? So it's a different, it's just a slightly different application, but the common denominator on how do you interact with somebody in despair or having suicidal concepts and ideations, you love them. And so if it's a clinician, you clinically love them. Right. We talk about bedside manner in in certain types of professions. And that is a game changer. When you get somebody who is really intelligent, remarkable and talented and they know how to love you, clinically love you. That's an outstanding clinician or colleague. So even if this is for families or professionals, just do it with your heart. Don't do it to avoid liability. So in my line of work or in medical settings, they will do safety plans and safety contracts but are they really gauging for safety and wellness or are they trying to cover their tail from liability and that's a huge paradigm shift of i'm not going to try to keep this person alive because i don't want a lawsuit i'm going to try to help this person stay alive because i care about them staying alive and while most average clinicians would probably say well i do that too it's not to avoid liability it's to help somebody come out of that tunnel that darkness and the way to do that is to connect. So if we just try to apply a little bit of affiliation, Charlie Brown theory again, Charlie Brown, you're on my team, dude, I'm picking you first. <laughs> and yeah, our baseball team is garbage, but I don't know, let's have some fun on the sandlot. And no, we didn't win, but we can go have pizza so we can achieve that too. So affiliation, non-pain and achievement. That's how I would say go about it. That's the secret sauce right there. That's what I think it is. That'd be my recipe. Right. But and that people... comes from that comes from a wealth of research that will identify all of the harm and risk variables. I'm simply inverting them. So the risk variables are isolation, loneliness, hopelessness, right? Those are a few of the variables. But then if we talk about trauma, let alone accumulated trauma over a career, right? When we talk about um chronic pain. There are so many variables, but if you invert those, those painful, those really tough things, you invert those into the affirmative, then Charlie Brown was alienated. So what if we gave Charlie Brown some props and, and gave him a compliment? Charlie Brown didn't kick the football. So what if we taught, taught him how to throw a baseball or a Frisbee, you know? Mm -hmm. So it is flipping that narrative into building, constructing versus just trying to stop the deconstruction we want to build i love it what was your favorite part about writing the book truthfully my very favorite part about writing that book favorite part was writing my acknowledgments to because it forced me to really think about who i was grateful for to be able to be in the position that i'm in and so i thanked the the patients and clients who have allowed me to work with them over these years. I thanked the people who have edited these damn books <laughs> and scrubbed my writing because I think I write like an eighth grader. Uh, I thanked my phenomenal bride of 23 years. I thanked my kids, my two teenage kids for having me as their dad. I thanked my professional colleagues who I consult with all the time. And I thanked two of my best friends for the last words in the entire book were thanking my two friends 
And I took a little veiled shot at both of them that only they would get. But I thanked them for being my friends and not allowing me to be Dr. Steve, but just to be Steve. So that my favorite part of the book was acknowledging all the amazing people that have allowed me to be who and where I am now. And if that's not living ideation, I don't know what is. That is a huge example of it. And that's what I love talking to you when we're working together is because you have a very optimistic way of looking at things and, but you're, you're very passionate and you always give acknowledgement to everybody else. So you did amazing work on this book and it's awesome. It's a, it's an easy read. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, I've not gotten to the acknowledgements yet though. I, I do apologize. I don't care. Um, okay. but I, but I, th- what I love is that, you know, you are very down to earth and you know, a lot of big words, but <laughs> you make it seem like everybody knows these big words. Like you, you can talk and you can talk as a clinician cause you're talking to clinicians, but then you can talk to your average mom and dad as an average mom and dad. And so this book is very palatable for pretty much anybody. I'm hoping so. I appreciate that feedback. You used a word a moment ago, optimistic. And I don't think I am. I think I'm just seeing what exists and I want to grow what exists. Right. Mm -hmm. I think everybody should have that one person that could look at you and pull out all of those good things about you and to tell you, because looking at myself, I may not know what my strengths are because I'm so focused on the weakness. So I love that you encourage that. Well, I think you're shortchanging yourself if you're only finding what you think your deficiencies are, right? So that's pain. So if we can also, I'm not saying don't, don't, it's not pain. It is your pain. But if we can at least give equal mic time to non-pain, then that's, that's a buoyancy and you're floating, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss that I squirreled right over? <laughs> Not that, not that it occurs to me, except we, we know how to live. So why don't we put our efforts into improving that instead of improving the deficits? There's room for that too. I'm not trying to give this Pollyanna approach of look at the bright side. It's just maybe look at all the sides, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And very thanks, for, thanks for facilitating this conversation. Yeah. So if people are interested in the book, how can they purchase it or get a hold of it? And how do they contact you if they want more information, maybe on a clinician training, or do you go to uh, firehouses or police stations and train staff as well? Uh, well, I do because I'm an embedded clinician with Truckee Meadows Fire. Uh, and so I do I do my, my work with the firefighters in person. I go to, to station rotations all the time. My BLM model is a pre-incident and pre-season model, and that is in truck barns out in the middle of nowhere. We just strike up conversations and we amplify living variables that aren't just about being a first responder or a firefighter. The military model, it's in person. It's not in a PDF or in a binder. So the concepts of how to contact me, well, you can actually email me at contact at livingideation.com. That's one way. I'm not terribly hard to find, even though I try to be somewhat hard to find. Hmm. Uh, For trainings, yeah, there's room for that. And for the book, if you want the book, I know that it's back ordered on Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now, but uh, that'll that'll open up soon. I know that. It's back ordered already? 
Yeah, I feel a little weird saying that. That's pretty cool. No, that's amazing. No, nah, it'll it'll open up. I guarantee. So okay. I just op- uploaded a cleaner version, um, and so uh, yeah, it's it's out there. You can order them. And is if it, you live in Northern Nevada, you can find me, and I'll give you one personally. Is it an e e format, e Kindle, e whatever? It should be. Yeah. Yeah. And- so the publisher said. <laughs> those publishers editors don't get me started do you have a publicist i mean i went to you directly so i was gonna say you you looking for a job change maybe a part-timer no no that would be the boss who owns 51 percent of my company and that's my lovely wife awesome we'll tell her hello for us you got it do you have any uh big projects or what are you doing next so it's funny but the second edition of living ideation is is being outlined right now and then i will write sub books of living ideation for specific populations so the one that i'm really geeking out on will be it will be a living ideation approach to an entire first responder call so the first first responder that's a dispatcher it's a person who feels the first contact all the way through who does that call get dispatched to law enforcement fire um ems all of that to maybe hospital. So all of the levels of that frontline worker or the, uh, you know, the charge nurse or somebody in the hospital, uh, all the way to the last responder. I think it's a very clever concept. The last responder would be a coroner. So living ideation concepts for all of the first responder, that would be like a sub book. Um, And then one for wildland uh, fire community specifically, because it's different breed. And then one for, overlapping military uh, personnel, active, veteran, multiple branches, uh, guard, things like that. So uh, reservists. So a concept of living ideation for that population and their families, because it's a family model. If you think of the ingress and egress of a season, imagine coming off deployment or retirement in the service. So it's that reintegration that is a, a huge shock to identity, not just for the service member, but for the loved ones of the service member. So yes, Aaron, there's a few projects going on. And then the school-based one, Living Ideation is a concept to try to work with mentoring adults with the, of kids in schools. That's awesome. I am yeah. so excited for you. And I'm so glad that I get to share a little bit of time with you throughout the months. And not only do you give the peer support network your expertise, but you know, I always kind of take a little bits and pieces when you're talking. So I appreciate it. Same here. I appreciate it too. So if you guys are interested, I'll put the links up in my page description for the episode, as well as in the YouTube channel, comments below and on social media. And if you have any questions, you can email Dr. S- Dr. Steve, Dr. Steve. I'm going to keep doing that. It's going to annoy the crap out of you. You can email him and you can contact him or I could put you in contact with him. So thank you so much, Dr. Steve. I appreciate you giving me your time today. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. And I hope that you found something that really resonates with you. I can't wait to share even more. So please subscribe to the podcast and you can find links to our resources in the description and at youroxygenmaskfirst.com.